Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are so happy you're joining us today. We really are. We do appreciate every time you tune in. That's because we love talking about true crime and we're happy that you like talking about it too. Yeah, we feel like we've found our tribe. So we do appreciate you. And Christy's got another case for us today. Of course I do. If you have been listening to our podcast for a while, I am sure you are well aware of my fascination with couple killers. We have brought you cases of duos who have done unspeakable things to other people together. Sometimes it's a set of lovers like Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate, or sometimes it's two dirtbag siblings like the Lafferty brothers, or two friends like the Toolbox Killer case, and sometimes it's even a parent and child like we recently discussed with Sante and Kenny Kimes. Today, I am going to bring you a case of two brothers. However, these two brothers did not become serial killers in the way you'd expect. They did not wreak havoc on the world by seeking out victims and murdering them together. Instead, these two dirtbags both became serial killers on their own at separate times. Oh, that really does say something about the nature versus nurture, doesn't it? It really does. It's pretty fascinating to me because I feel like What are the chances that two children from one family both grow up to become low-life scabs in society? All on their own. Yes. That's crazy. I don't know if I've heard of a case like that before. So are you going to tell us about them both today? Well, because these two men both killed independently of one another, I will be sharing with you one of their cases today. And then the next case I bring you in two weeks from now, we will be discussing the case of the other brother. So this is like a two-parter without actually being a two-parter. And their killings aren't connected in any way? No, they span like eight years apart. Wow. It just didn't feel like I could go through all of their victim stories adequately by bunching them in together. You had to discuss both their bigs separately. Exactly. So today we are going to start with the younger brother, Larry. Did he kill first? He did. His older brother like I said, wouldn't do his murdering until eight years later after his little brother. And was he inspired by his little brother? Oh, you're going to have to wait till we talk about him. You think that that would totally deter you? You would think so. This is interesting. I'm already intrigued. We can't wait two weeks for it. You're going to have to put it out. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a full case. So you're going to have to wait. And to be honest, the murders are not similar types of murders. I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss at the end of the next case that I bring. This already sounds so intriguing. It really is. But let's get started on the younger brother. Larry Lee Raines was born on March 22nd, 1945 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo is such a fun word to say. You've had another one from Kalamazoo because I've had to say it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun word, isn't it? It is. Larry would later change his name to Monk Steppenwolf. And I'll tell you why later but I will refer to him as Larry throughout this case and the next. As I'm sure you have guessed, home life was not an easy life for Larry growing up. There were four children in the family, including a brother two years his senior named Danny, the one who would also grow up to become a murderer. I could not find much information about the other two children in the family, just that the other two children were daughters. One was the oldest and the other the youngest, so Danny and Larry were sandwiched in between two sisters. The Raines' father was mean as dirt. He worked as a gas station attendant and ruled his home with an iron fist. Not a lot is learned about their mother, but I assume she would have been under her husband's thumb in the 1940s right alongside her children. Larry's mother was made to go to work, which was highly unusual for the time. Did they need the money? They absolutely did. His father could not support them on his income as a gas attendant, so she would work afternoons which meant the children were left in their mean, alcoholic father's care for a lot of the time. Larry's father would entertain himself by making the kids physically fight one another and compete for everything. He said he wanted his boys to be able to win in any fight with other people if need be. One story is that he would take pennies and make them fist fight to win them. 
I can imagine that this wouldn't have created a very safe, loving environment for the children, and it definitely set up a lifelong battle between the two brothers. It was said that they both loved and hated one another. I'm having a hard time not already jumping to conclusions of why the second brother murders. (laughs) It's a competition thing. Perhaps, but we'll talk about that in the next case. When making the children fight wasn't entertainment enough for their father, he would make his children drink alcohol. I am sure he thought it was hilarious to watch them become inebriated. That is very unusual. Mm -hmm. I didn't see specific reports of physical abuse. It was just labeled as the father being extremely authoritarian. So I think it is safe to say that physical punishment would have been a normal way of life in their home especially if he's making the kids fight just for things like monetary rewards. Oh, yeah. And he's getting them all liquored up. Oh, yeah. It's probably a safe bet. Mm-hmm. In true dirtbag-like fashion, the boys' father abandoned his family in 1954 when Larry was nine years old. Still so traumatic to a child to lose their parent, even when it's not a good one. Oh, it absolutely is. And he didn't just leave them. He moved all the way to Florida found a new wife, and worked at a gas station there. He just started a brand new life. He did. Yeah, which I know was hard for the kids, but I'm saying good riddance at this point. Reportedly, Larry and Danny went to go see their father when they were in high school, but he told them he didn't want to see them and sent them away. That is huge rejection. Big time. So when I say they were abandoned by him, they really were. And both boys were highly affected by their father in a very negative way. Although their tyrant father was now gone, things wouldn't necessarily begin to look up for Larry. I can just imagine the poverty. Yeah, it wouldn't have been easy. The mom was already working and they were having a hard time making ends meet with the father working too. In 1958, when Larry was only 13, he met a woman named Sue. Sue was 10 years older than he was at age 23 and was already a mother of three children. She was a neighbor who lived close by. At first, Larry would go over and help Sue out with her three children. I am sure he relished in her gratitude because his visits became more and more frequent. <gasps> Is it going to be a Mrs. Robinson scenario? Mm-hmm. Oh. This continued until he was basically helping Sue to raise her children with her. Unfortunately, before long, just like you guessed, Larry and Sue's relationship became sexual. Ew. We don't see this role reversed very often, but Sue totally took advantage of this boy. She basically took a child and turned him into a husband, making her a sick, selfish dirtbag. Yep. Instead of being a child himself, he was taking care of her children. Exactly. That would have been such manipulation because he would have been just coming into puberty. His hormones are all raging. And so for a little sex, he would have done anything for her. Right. But I think at first it was more just for the companionship, the gratitude that she would have been. The attaboys. Yeah. He's totally feeling abandoned. His mom is working trying to support them. He was an easy target for her. Yeah, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. We just don't see it reversed very often. It's true. Doesn't but... make it any less dirtbaggish. No, and it happens. So they started having sex. Did they end up having a kid together? No, they don't. Oh, okay. This so-called relationship continued for years. But in 1960, when he was 15, Larry began dating a girl from school named Kathy. Now, half of the report stated her name is Paula. I think her name is Kathy, but just note that it could be Paula. It was very odd to me that it was literally half and half. They don't even sound alike. How do you get Paula from Kathy or Kathy from Paula? That doesn't even make sense. (laughs) No, that's a good question. But they literally had both in there. So I'm going with Kathy because I feel like the most reliable source that I found was Kathy. Okay. Regardless, now he was involved with two women. At the same time? Yes. Oh, man. But remember how I said the brothers were raised to compete for everything? So his older brother is going to take his girlfriend? (laughs) But which one? (laughs) Well, Larry's older brother, Danny, also started dating Kathy. She would go back and forth between the two brothers. She apparently liked both of them, despite them being so different. Larry was more shy and introverted, and Danny was more forward and outgoing. Were they that different? They both end up being murderous dirtbags. But their demeanor and their personality is very different. Okay. So you have the life of the party, or you have the sweet shy guy in the corner. 
And she was having a hard time deciding. Hmm. The sensitive one that's taking care of the neighbor's kids. Well, after I tell you what he does, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> Did he start abusing the little kids? No, he doesn't. Oh, okay. No. But he, he's a serial killer, right? So. <laughs> Let's not forget why we're here. Let's not. Larry soon realized that a Casanova he was not. Being a player can be time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't have game. I got all the game. <laughs> I know it all. <laughs> yeah. You married your high school sweetheart. <laughs> we talk big over here. <laughs> no game. <laughs> but we can imagine what it would be like to have some game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but for Larry, juggling two women became overwhelming for him, and he started to fail his school classes. As a result, he dropped out of high school in grade 10. No longer in school, Larry found the time to get into trouble with the law. In 1962, he stole a car with one of his buddies and was arrested. The judge took pity on Larry and agreed to drop the charges if he agreed to enlist in the army, so Larry did. To no surprise, the army did not do the good for Larry as the judge had hoped. Larry was often being written up for misconduct and drunken behavior. It is reported that he had developed an addiction to alcohol. No kidding, his dad was pouring it down his throat. Oh, yeah. Which is just still so bewildering to me. It would have been a good escape for him. Yeah, unfortunately. With Larry out of the way, his brother Danny wasted no time and married their shared love, Kathy. In 1963, Larry attacked another man in the army while he was in a drunken rage. The attack was bad enough that he was dismissed from the army and sent back to Kalamazoo. That had to be pretty significant then. Well, this hadn't been his only outburst in the army, but this time, a guy stole his bag of potato chips. <laughs> he wasn't all that in a bag of chips, Christy. <laughs> was not. But this caused Larry to freak out. He grabbed a knife and was running around threatening to kill people. Over a bag of potato chips. Yeah. But remember... He had been basically trained by his father to always fight for everything. And if you didn't win, you were a loser. That's just how it goes, Christine. <laughs> if you don't win, you are the loser. <laughs> but you don't just lose. You're a loser. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but they had to fight for everything, like physically fight. So for someone to grab his bag of potato chips, he was not going to have it. He had to defend. Yeah, he had a skewed view on this. Right. And not only defend, he had to strike out and attack. Yeah. He had to make them pay. Right. It's always so interesting to me that you can see those childhood life lessons come through as an adult, even though he might have known better. Oh, for sure. But that was just his initial knee-jerk reaction or instinct. Right. It's your base reaction. Yeah. And when you're inebriated and... Not firing on all cylinders. It's amazing to me how quickly we go back to those base reactions. Yeah, it's true. When he returned home, Larry got back together with Sue. He would again help with the kids and clean her house, but she would go out at night without him, presumably on dates with men closer to her own age. Eventually, Larry asked Sue to marry him, possibly to keep up with his older brother since he had married their high school sweetheart. But Sue refused his proposal. Oh, she was only interested in him for his childcare and house cleaning. That's exactly what I have here. Funny how he was good enough to take care of her kids and sleep with, but not good enough to marry. Obviously, he's a dirtbag. He turns out to be a murderer. But I wonder what her reasoning was that he was good enough to keep around, but she didn't want to marry him. Well, he was 10 years younger than her. You think that would be a bonus at her age? Well, you would think so. But I think right from the start, Sue was just using him. I don't think she ever had any intentions of being in a long-term relationship. It was just this kid in the neighborhood with benefits. Yeah, that's rude. <laughs> that's not nice. It's not nice. Larry tried multiple times, but Sue was adamant that she was not going to marry Larry. Larry could not cope with the rejection and attempted to end his own life on December 23rd, 1963, just two days before Christmas. He would have been only around 19 years old at this point. Larry had tried to suffocate by inhaling the fumes of his 1958 Plymouth Plaza, but a police officer had happened upon him and took him to the hospital. Larry stayed at the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital for 10 days before being released, and I don't believe there was any follow-up care for his mental health after this. 
However, the doctor did diagnose him with a sociopathic personality. Scary. After this stay in the hospital, Larry hitchhiked his way to different states, including Ohio, Kentucky, and Nevada. He was truly a lost soul without a purpose. Well, he was rejected by his father, thrown out by the military, rejected by his longtime lover. Yeah. You can see why he would be feeling a loss of what to do with his life. Right. Because even Kathy had married his brother. Mm-hmm. You got to have a purpose. It's important to have a purpose. It really is. And feel like you fit in somewhere. Yeah. Or that you're of some form of value. Yeah. That you contribute something that has worth. And that somebody cares about you. Because right now he pretty much has nobody. Which I'm assuming is going to lead him to some awful dirtbaggery. It is. And we're going to get into that right now. We're going to fast forward to mere months later, to May 30th, 1964. This is the date that would lead to Larry's downfall. I am choosing to tell it this way because after he was arrested for this murder, he confessed to the rest. I like a confession. You do. On this Saturday evening, Thelma Smock entered the Kalamazoo police station to report her 30-year-old husband, Gary Smock, missing. She said that he had called her around 6 p.m. the day before to say he wouldn't make it for dinner, but that he wouldn't be too much longer. So basically, go ahead and start eating. I'll be there as soon as I can. While Thelma was at the police station making her report, a patrol officer called into the station saying they had discovered an abandoned Chevy on the side of the road with what appeared to be blood on the bumper. Oh, no. And she heard this report coming in? Yes, this was all happening at the same time. Thelma confirmed that it sounded like it could be the car that her husband was driving the night he went missing. He had only been missing for just under 24 hours. So I can't imagine her panic at that moment. Your heart would just drop. Yeah, you're literally reporting your husband missing and then you hear about this car that matches his car with blood on the bumper that they've just found. Hmm. It wouldn't take long before Thelma's nightmare would become a reality. Upon inspection, the officer who found the abandoned Chevy made a grisly discovery. When the officer popped the trunk of the car, they found the body of a man, face down in a pool of blood. It was clear by the state of the blood that the man had not been dead for a great length of time. This man was identified as Thelma's missing husband, Gary Smock. Gary Albert Smock was a junior high school teacher in Plymouth, Michigan, and served as a youth worker for the Church of God. He was a devoted husband and a father of two girls. His cause of death was determined to be a gunshot wound to the head, just below his ear. After an autopsy, the bullet indicated that Gary had been shot with a twenty-two caliber firearm. Gary was found with a cord wrapped around one of his wrists, suggesting that he had been tied up. Immediately, the officer could see that Gary's shoes had been taken, and later it was determined that other items had been taken as well, including his watch. The pathologist that examined Gary estimated that Gary had been killed between 6 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, May 30th. It was also estimated that Gary died within five minutes of being shot, so it may not have been an instant death. Oh, that's sad. Mm-hmm. That five minutes would be a long five minutes. On the night he went missing, Gary had been in Battle Creek for an appointment with the Chamber of Commerce regarding securing accommodations for a youth convention being held by the Church of God. He had made it to his meeting. There was a Chamber of Commerce map of possible facilities in his car when it was found. During his meeting, he told those present that he had to get going so he could make it back for a family dinner. Gary's family was waiting for him at his wife's parents' home in Allegan, which was about an hour's drive from his meeting in Battle Creek. Gary's car was found in Kalamazoo, which is about halfway along Gary's route between Allegan and Battle Creek. Oh, Larry did not go far from his hometown. Not for this one. Police were now tasked with trying to figure out what happened in the 24-hour span between when Gary called his wife and when his vehicle was found. A thorough search of the car was performed. A fingerprint and a palm print were found that did not match anyone in the Smock family. A second bullet was found inside the trunk where Gary's body had been discovered. Gary had no cash left in his wallet, and a check had been written by Gary to cash for $11 which is around 108 U.S. dollars today, which is less than 150 Canadian. Such a random amount, $11? It's probably what he had in his account. Okay. That's just what I'm guessing. Police began canvassing the area, knocking on doors, asking everyone they could if they saw anything. 
the only person to really claim that they saw something stated that they had seen the Chevy car at a gas station in Kalamazoo at around 11 p.m. the night Gary went missing. They claimed they saw two people sitting inside. It was later determined that this statement was incorrect, but I am unsure if the person mistook the car being there altogether or if it was seeing two people inside the car that was not correct. There was no follow-up information about that statement. Just it was dismissed. Okay. If the car had been filled up at the gas station at 11 o'clock that night, it was estimated by the amount of gas left in the car that the car traveled at a minimum of 100 miles or 160 kilometers before being ditched at the side of the road. That's quite the distance to travel overnight. It is, but definitely possible. And unfortunately, this meant that police did not have a lot to go on in hopes of finding Gary's killer. That's a lot of different directions to go into. And especially if you're working with somebody that knows the area. True. He's lived there his whole life. Mm-hmm. On the same morning that Gary's body was found, another man, Charles Snyder, had been found dead inside a gas station 60 miles away in Elkhart, Indiana. He had been shot in the head twice with a 22 caliber weapon. Officials from Michigan and Indiana were able to join together to try to see if the bullets found at both scenes could have been fired by the same gun. And I think this was remarkable for 1964, when it was harder to communicate between precincts. Well, and they're communicating between states. It's quite impressive. It is. It appeared that Charles's murder was also motivated by robbery. It was estimated that whoever had killed him had stolen $100 from the gas station. Police had no real leads, but thankfully, they wouldn't need one. The case of these two murdered men and the murders of the three additional men would be cracked wide open thanks to the actions of a good Samaritan. Just before midnight on Thursday, June 4th, only five days after Gary and Charles were found dead, a man named Arthur Booth called the police and told them that his friend had just confessed to him earlier that day that he had killed multiple people. This murderous friend was none other than the 19-year-old Larry Rains. He's a bragger? He is. Ugh. And from what I read, Arthur wasn't the only person that he had told this to. Arthur was just the first person to call it in. Was he bragging about it? Like, oh, look at me. Look, I'm scary and tough and look what I've done. Or was he like, I got to get this off my conscience? I think it was more get it off my conscience. Because Arthur said that Larry had showed up at his house and said that he had planned to tell a priest what he had done and then was going to end his own life. Hmm. That kind of fits more with his backstory. Mm hmm. Arthur let police know that Larry was still at his house and gave them his address. I assume with him calling close to midnight, he had likely waited for the first opportunity he could when Larry wouldn't be alerted to him calling him in. And I think good on that friend. It must have been a nerve-wracking experience for him, too. To sit in the living room waiting for the opportunity to call the cops? Yeah. All the time sitting beside a murderer. Right, having to just go along with the conversation. And act like, oh, this is just a normal conversation. Right. What do you say to somebody who's like, oh, I just killed five men? Tell me more about that. Right? That's what you say every time. <laughs> Get all the information you can. <laughs> like, wait, can I record you from my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but then if you know too much, maybe they would do away with you. Yeah, that's true. But thankfully, he did call. Police showed up to Arthur's residence and immediately arrested Larry. When they found him, he was described as being catatonic and was wearing Gary's shoes and watch. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Despite having just killed two men for money, Larry only had 15 cents in his pocket. Where'd all the money go? He later said he would spend the money on food and booze. Mm. And I just feel like, what a dirtbag. This tells me he didn't feel very remorseful. How could you walk around in the shoes of a man you just shot in the head and left on the side of the road? And for what? He was blowing the money almost as fast as he stole it. Surprisingly and thankfully, immediately Larry confessed to killing both Gary and Charles, but then would also later confess to killing more. So doesn't that speak to that he is actually feeling remorseful? To go talk to a priest, he wanted to end his life, and now he's going to confess right away. Well, as we talk about his trial, he never really says he's sorry. He doesn't really show any remorse. But that would have been considered weakness. Like how he was taught by his dad, but it sounds like he actually is feeling remorse underneath all of that. Could be. Or shameful. It's interesting. It seems like a dichotomy. It really does. 
I think he's more like, oh, I didn't amount to anything more so than, oh, I feel sorry for killing those men. Oh, he's feeling sorry for himself. That's more how I feel. As I've been researching, Larry, that, oh, I'm just the victim type of a mentality. That irks you. Yeah. But you're right. I think there's a lot going on there. When arrested, Larry freely handed over his 22 caliber handgun, which was promptly sent for testing. And that's what he had killed all five people with? Yes. When Larry first got to the station, he asked to speak to a priest. This request was granted, and Larry conversed with a priest for about an hour. Larry was examined at the station at around 3.45 a.m., now June 5th, and by 4.25 a.m., he was willingly giving them a formal statement. The assistance of counsel was offered to Larry before he gave his formal statement, to which he declined. There was never any question of coercion suggested in regards to his confession. He was ready and willing to tell all. So interesting. It is. Especially if he's not remorseful. I know. But is he braggy? No, I wouldn't say that he is. And maybe this will give some more understanding. Larry had been talking about ending his life. And so I think that at this point, he no longer cared what happened to him. And he later even talks about hoping that by confessing, he would be put to death. Oh. He said, quote, I turned myself in to get killed. I didn't turn myself in to do time. That makes more sense. Then. Yes. Although, by my research, I believe the state of Michigan banned capital punishment in 1963, the year prior to his murderous rampage. That being said, Michigan obviously wasn't the only state that he killed in. I'm just not sure if he was trying to sound tough or if he really thought he'd be put to death. But now that I say that... There were reports of him attempting suicide in prison years later, so perhaps it's true. It sounds like it. If he's had suicidal tendencies before, it might be more plausible that he really was just trying to end his life. He's committed these awful things. He does feel remorseful about it. He doesn't feel like he's amounting to anything, and he just wants to end his life. So what does it matter if if he tells all? Right. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that he's remorseful, but I do believe he just wanted it all to be over. Because he had denied legal representation, the assistant prosecutor called the medical superintendent at the Kalamazoo State Hospital at 4.30 a.m. to request a psychological assessment be administered to Larry. Because his behavior is bizarre. Right. He's like, we better call right away. The doctor he spoke to was Dr. Schreier. At first, he said, no problem, bring him in later today. But then he remembered Larry from his 10-day stay at the hospital after his failed suicide attempt. So he called the assistant prosecutor back and agreed to come to the station to examine Larry at 8 o'clock that same morning. About this, Dr. Schreier later said, quote, I got back in bed and suddenly it hit me as to what had happened and I called him back. He said he remembered Larry being the man that in his initial examination of him five months prior, he wrote about Larry, quote, while in the service, The taunts of Barrick's companions and theft of a five-cent bag of potato chips were sufficient reason to justify an attempt with butcher knives to remove the casual irritant, if necessary, by murder. From this, I think he knew this man being held in custody was definitely capable of murder. Sounds like it. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that he referred to Larry viewing the person he was going to come after with a butcher knife as a casual irritant. Yeah. So really, he's saying that this guy can flip his lid over the littlest thing. Right. And doesn't care who he's going to hurt. When Larry was told that he would be examined by Dr. Schreier, he then said, quote, you mentioned something about an attorney. I think maybe I better have one. Larry was told that a lawyer would not be available to him until later that day. That being said, when Dr. Schreier arrived promptly at 8 o'clock a.m., He agreed to talk to him, as well as Dr. Decker, the clinical director of the hospital. They spoke freely for two hours with Larry without a lawyer present. Later that same day, at around 1.30 p.m., Larry was appointed a lawyer, and he entered a defense of insanity. As I mentioned, Larry had spent the previous few months hitchhiking across different states. On the night he met Gary, he was in fact hitchhiking, and Gary, being the good person he was, stopped to help the young man who he believed was in need. Sometimes I have to remind myself, too, he was only 19. Mm -hmm. He was still a kid. Yeah. Gary pulled over, and when he stopped to ask Larry if he needed a ride, 
Larry pulled out his gun and made Gary drive the two of them to a more secluded road in the country. And I just feel like this whole ordeal for Gary had to have been so terrifying. It almost sounds very practice from Larry's point of view, though. It does. He ordered Gary to stop and robbed him of his cash, which was only $3. So around 30 US dollars today. Larry made Gary get into the trunk of his own car, told him to stay quiet, and then proceeded to drive the car himself. At some point while driving, Larry could hear Gary hollering and banging against the trunk of the car to try and escape or alert someone for help. Larry had told him to be quiet when he put him in the trunk, so he pulled over on another secluded road. He was annoyed that Gary hadn't listened to him. That's not good. He opened the trunk and restrained Gary by tying his hands behind his back and then fired a shot at his head. Larry missed. This was the extra bullet that was found in the trunk of the car. That would have been so terrifying. I cannot even imagine what Gary went through. Sadly, Larry did not miss when he shot again. This time, the bullet entered Gary's head. Satisfied with his work, Larry closed the trunk with Gary's body still in it, got back into the car, and continued driving. After a while, Larry grew hungry, so he stopped for a burger. But he only has three bucks. Well, that's like $30 today. That's enough for a burger. (laughs) If you go to the right place. My guess is he paid for that burger with the man's money who laid dead in the trunk of the car he drove up to the burger shop in. With his stomach satisfied, Larry drove to Elkhart, Indiana and chose a gas station to rob. He sat parked outside the station and waited for it to open. When opportunity arose, Larry entered the gas station and ultimately killed the attendant working there. 33-year-old Charles E. Snyder. As I already said, he shot him twice in the head, took $100, and left him laying on the gas station floor. His next plan was to head back to Kalamazoo. It's interesting that he chose a gas station attendant, and his dad was a gas station attendant. It really is interesting. You're on to something. And this next part might blow your mind a little bit, because it did mine. Sometime after Larry left the gas station, a group of men who were heading out to go fishing stopped at the gas station to fill up before they got on their way. After waiting for the gas jockey to come out and fill their vehicle, and no one was running out, they went inside and discovered Charles's body. They saw the cash register left open and immediately called the police. Police quickly set up roadblocks leading away from the gas station, And I believe that this is possibly how they came into contact with the Kalamazoo police because they had alerted nearby stations, even in adjoining states. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. Mm -hmm. But I thought good on them. They were very responsive. Larry had not gotten far enough away from the crime scene and had to go through one of these roadblocks. This is the part that blew my mind. He said he just acted relaxed and the police let him proceed. No way! All the while, Gary lay dead in the trunk of the car. They didn't see the blood on the bumper? Nope. This was a different state, and Gary hadn't been reported missing yet, so police had no reason to suspect Larry of any type of foul play. Except blood on the bumper! I know! They basically said he was so calm that he raised no red flags. But can you imagine? I thought stuff like this only happens in the movies. That's that sociopath personality coming through that it just didn't even matter to him that he had killed somebody. He could act totally normal. Yeah. Well, for him, it was totally normal. As we're going to find out because you're going to tell us about more murders. Yep. I'm not sure, though, if this spooked him, but Larry decided to drive back to the spot on Route 131 near the Kalamazoo city limits where Gary had picked him up to abandon the car. It's an interesting choice. Right? Go right back to that spot. No. Like, go drop it off somewhere else and not get caught. Yeah, that's weird. He said that it was at this time that he noticed the blood on the bumper, but he couldn't be bothered to clean it. He said he simply didn't care. As Larry continued confessing to the other murders, police began to notice a pattern, which Melissa already noticed. On April 6th, Larry had entered a gas station at the I-94 interchange in Battle Creek and fatally shot a man working there with his twenty two caliber handgun. The gas attendant's name was Vernon LeBen. He was from Southfield, Michigan. He was 21 years old and worked at the gas station part-time. He was an active-duty Air Force member stationed at the Fort Custer Training Center. He was found the next day and miraculously was still breathing, but not conscious. He remained in a coma and died 12 hours later. 
I think after being in the military, you would have been a better shot to kill people right away. I don't know, but it didn't sound like he was doing very good in the military. I don't know how much he learned. Right. One report said that Vernon was supposed to get married on the day that he was found, but I didn't find anything to substantiate that part. So I have a feeling that that might be just people embellishing on the story. Mm. But I thought I would put it in there just in case it is true. His death is pretty sad either way, but that would have made it even more tragic. It would. On April 20th, Larry entered the S&F Tire Company service station in Manchester, Kentucky. There he shot 38-year-old Charlie Sizemore. He had also been robbed and was also miraculously still breathing when he was found. He was rushed to a hospital in Lexington, but died mere hours later. I wonder if he's purposely trying to inflict pain on these people. I don't know. And it does sound like he's totally going after his dad. Oh, definitely. That part I don't doubt at all. Larry said he was also picked up hitchhiking on May 23rd near Death Valley. Death Valley is widely known for being in California, but I believe a small part of it does extend into Nevada, which is near the spot that this man picked Larry up. This man had no money to his name to steal. But Larry, being the massive dirtbag that he was, decided to kill him anyway. His body would sadly take over two years to find, and I was unable to find any document that ID'd him. But Larry confessed to killing this person. He did. And I did read that a body had been found two years later. Hmm. It was clear that because of the trauma that Larry had developed at the hands of his father, he had a deep-seated hatred towards gas station attendants or was triggered by them at the very least. Not an excuse, but gives us some insight to how he chose his targets. The ones that just set him off a little bit faster than everybody else. Right. But he kind of was seeking them out too. Like he drove to Indiana that day to target a gas station. Right. What was clear to police at this point was that they were dealing with a serial killer. Larry's trial began later the same year as his murders on September 29, 1964 at the Kalamazoo County Circuit Court. And I thought they weren't messing around by scheduling it so quickly. Either that or the court systems weren't as overloaded in the 1960s as they are now. I think there might be a lot more paperwork to go through. Oh, definitely probably stricter protocol. Yeah. He was to be tried for the first-degree murder of Gary Smock. Larry's court-appointed defense used the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. Dr. Schreier and Dr. Decker would later testify at the trial that Larry Raines was sane. Well, they had examined him right away. you think that they would have a good take on it. And they had examined him previously. Yes. The defense argued that the doctor's testimonies should not be permitted in court, seeing that they had violated Larry's Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination and his Sixth Amendment right to have counsel by examining him after he had requested a lawyer. The prosecution argued that Larry's constitutional rights were never violated. They rebutted the defense with a statement by Sergeant Carl W. Lutz. It read, quote, And upon entry into the holding room, Defendant Reigns was sitting there, and I walked over to him, extended my hand, and introduced myself as Sergeant Lutz from the Michigan State Police at 5th District Headquarters. I then introduced him to the remaining men who were with me at this time. I said to him that I wanted to talk to him. I had been informed that he had admitted to Sergeant Duncan that he had committed the murder in the case that we are investigating, and I told him that before he did so that it was incumbent upon me to advise him to just exactly what his rights would be. I first of all told him that he needn't say a word to me unless he so desired, and I further advised him that if he did, that anything he would say to me or to the men who were with me at this particular time might and could be used against him in the event of court action. I further told him that he could be advised or be in the presence of an attorney, if he so desired. And at the same time, I told him I thought he would need an attorney. Larry apparently did not respond, but then went ahead and spoke about his murders, as well as spoke freely with the doctors. So I know in Canada, that's okay to do. Because even if you ask for a lawyer, if you continue to talk after and don't exercise your right to silence, then that can all be used against you. But I think in the States, isn't it a little different from state to state? Well, we will talk a little bit more about it. And I'm not 100% sure how that works in the state of Michigan. Because I'm pretty sure as soon as they ask for a lawyer, like you can't even ask them any more questions. I think you're right. But I don't know for sure. Oh. 
The judge, however, sided with the prosecution and allowed the testimonies to be included in the trial. The doctors testified that Larry said he didn't think his life would ever amount to anything. He had no sense of self-worth, especially after being thrown out of the army. He felt worthless and didn't know what to do with his life. He had no sense of direction. So he became a dirtbag? Yep. Ugh. Larry expressed that his actions were because no one helped him through his difficult time after Sue rejected him, and he had tried to take his own life. He said that if someone had understood him, he might have been able to get help and then wouldn't have done what he did. The closest he ever came to taking accountability was when he said about himself, quote, there has to be some part of me left out, meaning something was wrong with him. But that's as close as it gets. Wow, he just blames it on everybody else. Yeah, this victim mentality. Oh, that's so irksome. Other psychologists stated that Larry had a subconscious hatred towards gas stations because of the trauma his father had caused him. And in Larry's mind, he was killing his father over and over again. They even pointed out that all the victims resembled his father in some way. But then I say, what about Gary? He did not work at a gas station, although I do not know if he resembled Larry's father. And there was that other guy out in Death Valley. Right. Who also was not working at a gas station. And just a little aside here, I could not find young pictures of Larry or his brother, let alone their father. So even the pictures I'll post on our social media are of them as old men. My guess is no one really cared to take their photograph growing up. It wasn't the time of smartphones. So I can't say if they looked like his dad or not. Right. Seriously, they're old men in the <laughs> pictures. That's why I think maybe too, as I'm doing this, I'm like, I can't picture him at 19. Larry said about his murders, quote, there was never a plan. It was a natural thing. It always seemed to me like I was an actor in a play. The defense ran with this saying he had experienced temporary insanity each time he committed a murder. But I'm not buying that. It doesn't sound like it. He sought out to murder these people. Larry did not help his case by his unremorseful attitude. He spoke about the murders very nonchalantly. It was almost like he was describing an everyday activity. He made a comment about how the blood flew farther than he had expected with one, and about another man he said the man, quote, bounced a couple of feet in the air. Trauma and insanity were not good enough excuses for the court. On October 8th, the jury found Larry Raines guilty of first-degree murder. On October 23rd, he was given the sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Larry's only reaction to his verdict being read was a smile. What? Yeah. He is a little strange. He is. And that's where I just don't buy him being remorseful, to be honest. And we all know how I feel about this next part, but he was never tried for any of the other murders. Yeah, that never sits well. Yeah, I dislike that very much. I get why it happens. A murder trial is a lot of money. And if he's already in jail, then what else are you going to do? But then I just feel like that justice wasn't served for those victims. Right. I get it, but I don't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Larry was suspected of actually committing a sixth murder. Many believe that he might have been responsible for killing a 27-year-old man named Donald Perkins. Donald was robbed while working at a gas station and was killed with a 22 caliber weapon near Erie the August prior. The ballistics did not match his current murder weapon, but the MO did, and he could easily have had a different gun the year before his killing frenzy. Right, but if he confessed to the other ones, why wouldn't he confess to this one? Yeah, I'm not sure. Although Larry never admitted to killing Donald, he did admit to almost killing another man named Dave Pitts. Dave was apparently the only one who got away. He said, quote, You guys ask me about the five guys I killed. Why don't you want to hear about the one I didn't kill? Was he a gas station attendant too? Well, I am actually unsure of the story involving Dave Pitts. Just that they had spent three days together, and that Dave later became an animal trainer with a chimp named Spanky. Okay. Dave has made statements, and he said that he will tell his story when he publishes his memoir. And it hasn't come out yet. It hasn't. I googled it, and I couldn't find anything saying that it was out. Spanky and Dave. Yeah. Do Vegas. <laughs> I think Buenos Aires is where he Buenos lived for a while, Aires. actually. But don't count me on that. It was somewhere <laughs> South America that he was living. But both Larry and Dave have been very tight-lipped about this. So if that memoir comes out, we'll have to update. 
But I kind of agree. Why would he admit to the others and not to the one the year prior? But many believe he did. Hmm. It just seems like he was so forthcoming about all the other ones that why would he not tell that one? Right. I just felt like it was worth mentioning. Right. There is a speculation out there. The police even think that he did. Hmm. Larry would file a couple of appeals fighting that his rights had been violated because he did not receive counsel prior to his examination with the first two psychiatrists. In 1971, he was granted a new trial. However, when he realized that his insanity plea was not going to get him off, he pled guilty anyways and was given a new life sentence without the possibility of parole. What a waste of money! Right? And he had done multiple appeals before he was finally granted that new trial. From what I could gather, he still remains at the Saginaw Correctional Facility. Larry was interviewed in the mid-70s, and still it was said that when the interviewer, Conrad Hilberry, spoke with him, he was, quote, struck by the eerie casualness with which he accommodated himself to murder. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this interview next time. But Larry had told him that he was able to distance himself from life. An example he gave was that when he was a little boy and their family dog was run over by a car and died, he said he felt nothing. Larry also told Conrad that he didn't kill the men that he did because they reminded him of his father. He said they were just easy to rob. I don't know. I think it had to have reminded him of his father. Yeah. I think he's just trying to sound tough. But maybe he just didn't make the connection himself. It definitely could have been a subconscious thing. The guy flies off the handle over a bag of chips. And so if he can lose it that quickly over something so little, you can see how a gas station attendant would totally trigger him. I think you're right. Yeah. So whether he's doing it consciously or subconsciously, it it has to have something to do with it. It can't not. Yeah. The great abandonment and abuse from his father, who was a gas station attendant, and then he targets the majority of his victims are gas station attendants. It has to coincide. Definitely the rage is there. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the case of a man so cold-hearted and indifferent to murder that he valued small amounts of money over another man's life. The rotten dirtbag brother, Larry Rains. That was a crazy case. And I am so intrigued now to hear your next one. I have to see how they're going to relate to each other. Yeah. Danny's is a pretty wild case as well. And so we will talk a little bit about Larry still in Danny's case because there are a few things that happen with Larry during his incarceration. That I don't want to talk about until we talk about his brother. But I will share this one last thing with you before we let you go. While in prison, Larry was allowed to legally change his name to Monk Steppenwolf. (laughs) So random. He got this name from the novel Steppenwolf written by German-Swiss author Hermann Hesse. In this novel, the main character struggles between physical and mental reality. And fun fact, the band Steppenwolf, who sings the hit Born to be Wild, also named their band after this same book. However, that's not the really interesting part about Larry changing his name. What makes it wild to me is that Larry later changed his name so that he would not be associated with the evil of his older brother, because even he, a convicted serial killer, was horrified by his brother's actions. No way! Seriously. Pot calling kettle black. Yes. Wow. It's incredible. But you're going to have to wait two weeks for me to tell you about him. Thankfully, Melissa will bring us a new case next time. So we hope you join us then. Have a good week. See ya. Bye. Sorry, it's gonna have to be in your face. It's in my face. <laughs> Get out of my face. <laughs> Quit hitting me in the face with your bike. Have you ever seen Kids History? Oh. <laughs> you get stopped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Tell me a story, Christy. I'm already. Let's go. I make a really deal. Because these two men both killed independent. Well, because these two. Well, because two, these two men both. <laughs> let's say that a different way. Yeah, let's say that a different way. Hold on. I've totally spaced out.
Oh, it's coming back. Go away, motorcycle. He's got game. <laughs> He's burning rubber for the girls. <laughs> this is how you can tell you're getting old. The other day, well, a couple weeks ago, I was in my garden. And this, like, young teenage kid in his truck with a girl in the seat, he comes to, like, the stop sign here. And he floors it, like, spins his tire, just totally, like, burns rubber and just screeches out. Mm -hmm. And I literally felt like looking at him and making an L on my forehead. You loser! She's not impressed! That doesn't impress us! (laughs) That only impresses other boys! Why do you think that's going to impress the girl? It doesn't. To one-up you, Christy. (laughs) When you were telling me that story, I'm like... What an idiot. That burns your tires. What a waste of money. <laughs> Do you know how much that takes off the life of your tires? <laughs> but he, you could tell he just thought he was so yeah. cool. I'm all that and a bag of chips. You're not. <laughs> Girls don't care that you can spin your tires. Wow. Yay. Yay. <laughs> That's still my stomach. Sorry. That's okay. Did you bring a lunch? I didn't. I brought a okay. canola bar. I already ate it. And oh. it's- <laughs> Then he just went like right on like it never even happened. <laughs> well, it was rude. It was rude. He's so rude. <laughs> Don't be rude. <laughs> How rude. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.